This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 79. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 79 you're currently listening to. Not to be mistaken for 67, 43, 12, 1, whatever. 79, yes, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. Yet another great show for you. This time, very excited. This guy never does interviews or rarely does interviews. There's very few interviews with him out there. We're talking about Dave Fridman, you know, responsible for records, groundbreaking records with the Flaming Lips. Uh, MGMT, Sparkle Horse, OK Go, Phantom Planet, Black Moth Super Rainbow, really huge discography, amazing uh, work that he does. I have to give special thanks to our former WCA guest, Alan Farmello, uh, for arranging the interview. Like I say, Dave rarely does these, but Alan convinced Dave that this was uh, a good interview to do. So appreciate that, Alan. And Dave, thank you for doing this, if you uh, are listening. So there it is, Dave Fridman coming up. So uh, before we get into Dave's interview, we've got a couple items to run by you, a couple thoughts. I watched this movie on Netflix, and I'm going to encourage you all to check it out. Now, you're, a few of you are going to like raise eyebrows when I say this. It's The movie's called We Are Twisted Fucking Sister. Obviously, it's about Twisted Sister. Regardless of whether or not you are a fan of Twisted Sister, whether you love them, hate them, whatever, you got to check this movie out. It's long. It's two hours and 15 minutes. And I had to do it in two parts because I was falling asleep because I was starting to watch it late at night. But you got to check it out. If you want an example of a group of people go through an enormous amount of excruciating hard work and getting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock and having opportunities come and disappear back and forth over and over again, and then finally triumph, this is a movie to watch. And whether you think it applies to you or not, I would say that you can pull out of it what you can about hard work and really putting your nose to the grindstone. These guys just, it was very inspiring to watch. And it, you know, first of all, it gave me a glimpse into how long Twisted Sister has been around. I had no idea. It also gave me, uh, who's a West Coast guy, more of an idea of the club scene in uh, New York was like, you know, in Long Island and, uh, the, and Queens and all the outlying areas around New York outside of Manhattan. Because, you know, for a lot of people, Manhattan is the center of the world, but there's a whole other world outside of Manhattan. And so this is really great. So I encourage you to check it out. We are Twisted Fucking Sister. Look it up. Came out in 2014. Check that out. Very inspirational. So as I record this, it's the weekend and uh, summer has already started. My kids are out of school. Uh, they're home today. Well, it's the weekend. Of course, they're home. And they're in the other room playing games. And hearing their voices in the background reminds me. Um, I had this idea. I've, I've been playing some games with them. A couple games. Um, Plants vs. Zombies and um, Star Wars Battlefront. They're fun games, and I'm not really a gaming kind of person, but those two games really appeal to me for some strange reason. Anyhow, there's a concept that I've kind of picked up out of them, and I'm and I'm gonna try to translate it to audio and see if you can get the meaning of it. So bear with me as I kind of take you through a little miniature uh, parallel 
of video games and audio work or kind of a, a working class type of audio work. So as you're playing either of these games, so let's say you're playing Plants vs. Zombies. You're the plants, you're fighting the zombies, and you have to choose the plants that you're going to use to fight the zombies. In Star Wars Battlefront, you're choosing you know, which weapon you're going to use. You switch sides back and forth between, you know, the, the rebels or the empire. So you always have a weapon and then some like a jet pack or something. You have some basic tools. Of course, as you play these games, either one of these games, you're getting more points and you're being encouraged to buy more gear for your, you see where this is going already. I'm sure you're encouraged to buy more plants different plants to fight the zombies with. And in Star Wars Battlefront, you're, you know, as you go through levels, you get more opportunity to buy more stuff, more different guns, different things. And what's interesting to me is as in playing these games, I developed, you know, like in Plants vs. Zombies, I thought, okay, well, I can use the following basic things and, a, and develop a strategy to win, to beat the zombies. And if I do that every time, I don't even have to worry about buying this extra stuff. Same in Battlefront. Just get the, find the gun that works, find the the jetpack and the the maybe the the uh, the bomb that that or whatever it is, the grenade you can throw in the game and use that. Don't worry about buying the latest whatever it is. And obviously, you know, I had an epiphany one day thinking, "Oh my gosh, this really reminds me of the world of audio." So let's let's make that parallel now. Uh, we're always being encouraged to buy new stuff. We think, you know, oh, well, that's going to help me win the game. And that is just not always the case. Now, this is not by any stretch an anti-gear uh, tirade, but what it is is more of kind of a harking back to what John Schimpf and I were talking about in the episode that John was on uh, the number, spa I'm spacing out on the number, but look at the John Schimpf episode, episode John from uh, 25th Street Studios. We talked about kind of, you know, hunkering down with a basic set of tools and really coming up with a strategy to make your audio business work. So while there's a lot of great stuff out there and a lot of it just really draws me in, if you really want to make some progress financially, consider this strategy. Consider just staying with the tools you have, learning those tools as best you can. You know, if it's a pair of NS10s that you've got and that's all that you have, Figure out everything about those NS10s. Figure out, you know, when when they were made and what's the where's the crossover frequency at and all the details. You know, what what ohm rating are they and all that stuff. Uh, where you can possibly buy replacement parts and all that. And then spend an extraordinary amount of time listening to those and really learning those speakers. And then maybe uh, your computer is not the latest greatest thing. Maybe it's an older laptop. You know, get that computer up and running to the best of your ability. Maybe you want to swap out uh, the hard drive and uh, inside and make it a solid state drive and get a little more mileage out of it. Really just, I'm hammering, trying to hammer home the point. I know you all get it by now and I'm just kind of beating a dead horse, but really think about hunkering down with a core set of tools that allows you to get your job done and then see what you don't end up using that lies around a bunch and maybe purge those things, maybe sell those things. And maybe that at, at some point in that process, you can identify, ah, okay, these are the tools I really need. And what I'm really lacking is this one thing, this mic, this compressor, this, whatever this there's, you'll discover in that process, there is a tool that you probably could use more than any other tool. 
and then you focus your uh, extra resources into that. So that's my video game audio parallel analogy kind of concept for today. And I hope you, you understand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to, once again, not trying to make a tirade against buying gear, but just trying to make the right decisions and have the best course set of tools that you can. So there it is. And still the kids, I hear them in the background, they're still playing. So while they're doing that, let's just jump straight into our interview with Mr. Dave Fridman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Alan Farmello was instrumental in you coming on the show, and I appreciate you taking the time out because I think a lot of people really want to hear what you have to say. And <laughs> I, guess we'll, I guess we'll see whether that's true or not. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we won't count the chickens before they hatch, but yeah. So I, I want to start with what's going on right now. So currently you, you work out of your studio, which I believe is Tarbox Studios. Yeah, Tarbox Road Studios. And you've had that studio for quite some time, if I'm correct. It's almost almost twenty years now. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a long time. Uh, <laughs> it is. <laughs> is that a, is that a residential studio? Um, I no. Although there is facilities, if people choose to crash there, that is their option, and most people choose to do so. So that's up to them. I see. Is that yeah? That's uh, upstate New York somewhere. Well, it's Western New York. Okay. Yeah. So when people work with you. In terms of the ratio of what people do with you, do you mostly produce an engineer or mix or a combination of the two? Is there one thing that leads more than the other? I would say I produce, and as a result, since I'm pretty much the only guy there, I'm also mixing and engineering. Ah, no assistants, no interns. I have, I've had assistants over the years, and I have my, my son is assisting me currently. That's it's always subject to change, so... So, um, one thing that struck me, and I know that I said we wouldn't talk about gear, but I was, I think I was kind of surprised. I was looking over the gear list and the first thing I thought was, does he have like one of every basic kind of recorder? <laughs> I don't throw things away very often unless there's some real problem with it, you know? And and I bring that up because you, not only do you have a radar, but you have an, an Atari two inch, you have a Pro Tools HD rig, you have uh, ADATs, you have a TSR-8. Sure. Yeah, man, you've got you've got a, a selection of it all. Do you continue to use all those different things in the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, the the radar honestly most of the time now is just for restoring really old things. I haven't actually used that as a main multi-track for a long time. Mm. I'm not against it; it just hasn't come up. Mostly, that's just for because I have so many old files in radar format that I need to keep them to be able to bring them back occasionally. Mm. That's it's always a a trick with any of the the stuff that we use is you know bringing back old stuff um in terms of archiving. Now with indie bands uh that I mostly deal with, I'm always just acting like a digital pack rat uh with you know DAW files and keeping stuff on hard drives. Do you find it your your responsibility to hold on to stuff for people? I know it's not my responsibility. But um, if I don't, they'll be gone forever. So I do. <laughs> um, I've, I cannot tell you how many times I've sent masters out to record companies in particular, and then they're just gone and nobody knows where they are anymore. But fortunately, of course, I made a copy before I sent it, so I still have it. And then I can make another copy for them to lose later. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's interesting. So do do you ever get the panicked call of we we can't find the master for this <laughs> this classic record that you did? Can you help us? More frequently than yeah, than I'm sure any of the labels would care to admit. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always on the fence about that stuff. I'm always like, well, should I hold on to this or and then I'm I'm in that same boat. I think, well, if I don't, you know, I'm going to get that call. Yeah. And I inevitably do. It's it's strange. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't think so, but yeah, I mean the tape library and the I mean cuz we because of you know all those formats we just discussed, 8 track, you know, reel to reel and 2 inch and radar, you know, I've got all the backup tapes and all the backup machines and all the ways to get all that stuff still restored and Every time I bring anything back from the old formats at this point, I do transfer it into Pro Tools, but I have to have all that stuff. It's, there's no way around it. Interesting. So that's where you're currently at, and you mentioned your son is is assisting you. Mm -hmm. um, I always kind of hold off this question till much later in the interview, but for those with families, mm. how do you do the work-life balance thing? How does that work for you? We're all still here, so I guess it's working okay. <laughs> um yeah, it's, I mean, it's a family operated business, you know, when in between bands, we all go up there and clean and my wife takes care of all the business portions of it and does all our websites and all our, any, any social media stuff that happens. That's all her, the kid, you know, the kids come up and are, we're sweeping the floors and vacuuming and doing whatever has to happen. And then next band rolls in and the one we I have, we have two sons and uh, one of them is has been assisting me for on and off for the last few years, although he's finishing up college now. So I'm not sure if he's going to continue doing that. And the other one is going into college, uh, taking sound recording technology. And so he may or may not in the future be interested. I guess we'll find out, but I I'm, I'm talking to you now on their system, you know, in the basement. So um, they're, <laughs> they're, they, they both know, know their way around pro tools pretty good. That's that's interesting. So your your wife does she have uh, another gig or another interest beyond uh, working? I think that's plenty. Yeah, doing doing all that stuff, and plus you know, as uh, you've discussed with some of the other people, and I'm sure yourself know, you know, I typically work a twelve hour day. So and there was a time when the kids were quite young. We built the studio. Actually, you know, when we were building the studio, one of them wasn't born yet, and um, you know, I would I would just be gone. I'm gone. I was gone before that traveling to other places and then we built the studio and then I'm just gone but 10 miles away you know but I'm unavailable 12 hours a day and so that's that's plenty <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a chunk of time to, to be away do you like that better have just being 10 miles away having control of your own studio environment absolutely yeah I did like going to other people's places and you get to meet people and do things and all that stuff but I mean the stability of having the same you know, same tools every day and being able to know all that stuff inside and out is, has been great. When you built Tarbox, had you had any success at that point? I mean, major success? <laughs> or, or, I mean, were you just um, kind of going, all right, I'm going to build this and hope that they'll come? No, not, and I would not recommend that approach to anybody. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I had, I had already been doing this when I built the studio, not quite 10 years. You know, I was almost, I was almost 30 by the time we decided to build the studio. Mm -hmm. Had made a lot of records, I suppose, at that point, you know, maybe 20 or 30. And I was had a pretty consistent thing happening. And so we decided to, to build the studio just because one of the major impetuses was we were making uh, the Flaming Lips Zyreka record. Mm -hmm. And at that time, we were aware, all right, well, if we're going to do this, 
we're going to need to go to a really great studio and it's going to cost a lot of money and we don't even know what we're even trying to do yet. And so um, it may be cheaper in the long run if we just build a studio and do this thing. And fortunately at the time, this, the technology was advanced enough to have uh, the Otari Concept Elite was the first console we had there. And that um, had total recall and built-in compressors and gates and all that kind of good stuff. And we thought, all right, well, that's the kind of, you know, we're going to have to go to a room with a SSL 9000 or something in order to get what we want um, to be able to do four CDs simultaneously and all this stuff. So, um, but the concept elite could handle it actually pretty easily. And so we're like, all right, this is something we can make happen. And so we did. Interesting. And in, in the construction of it or in the layout of it at that time, you're, you're building a studio trying to think ahead what what the demands are going to be yeah so ultimately what did you settle on in terms of you know did you have like one ISO room and a big room and a, and a control room or how did how did that pan out we ended up finding a house that is basically an Amish barn and uh, I had already been working on and off for years at this place called Sweetfish in upstate New York and that had a similar feel at the time it had a PV console and I'd made a ton of records on it and it was really just a house area, home construction into a barn, you know, just normal walls, not even double drywall. It was no isolation, no nothing. It was, it was, it was very, um, seat of your pants kind of setup, but it, w but it worked and you could go there and you could spend all the time in the world working on something. We had a great time out there. So it's like, well, I'll just build something like that, but a little nicer here. It's really just one big room with a few ISO boots and a control room separate from that. And that's that. Very cool. Uh, obviously, it's paid off because as far as bookings, I assume you're booked all the time. That would be correct. <laughs> I mean, I'm super glad and super lucky, but uh, I I can't do all the stuff I want to do. There's just too many things, which is that's, great. That's a great position to be in. Yeah, You're one of those guys that really flies under the radar. Like, everybody, uh, like <laughs> everybody knows you. But you're not out there all, you're not out in gear ads all the time. You're not, it's like, you're kind of the, this like very no. quiet voice that's out there making these very impactful records. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you think so. Yeah. It, I mean, that's my perception. I mean, is that by well, design? Thanks. Well, um, this is kind of a weird, I'm not exactly sure why I even said yes to this, but, um, I, I don't do a lot of interviews. I don't, um, not, I guess I'm not really trying to get to some sort of like, yeah, let's all talk about Dave Fridman. You know, I'm, I don't, I, I don't care. I'm much more, I'm just helping a bunch of people try and do the weird things they're trying to do. And that's maybe that's, that's the key to the success is, you know, some people really set out to, I think, focus on maybe the wrong things. And maybe in your case, like maybe you're just focused on the right thing and focusing on the, on the music and trying <laughs> to, trying to help. Maybe. I mean, that's, I'm just doing, I guess, I don't know what else I would be doing. You know, I'm not, I'm not running for the head of AES. <laughs> I don't have any, I don't have any audio agenda I'm trying to push. I'm just making some weird That's, sounds here. I, I love that. Are you involved in AES? I've, I've been to them. Yeah. Know, but uh, I, yeah, not, not in particular, no. I like that. I like, I think I'm, I'm drawn to the work of the people that tend to stay out of the limelight. I kind of put you in that same bracket uh, with Chad Blake uh, <laughs> as, you know, well, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> doing really, really crazy cool work, but really kind of staying quiet and not being like, "Look at me, I'm on the cover of this magazine." And 
Well, there's uh, there's an in between where you know I think there's a lot of really good people that try very hard to sort of give back and do mentoring and tutoring and things like that. And I I guess I, I do teach at the college here at SUNY Fredonia, um, which is great and has been super informative to me. Um, but uh, that's that's about all I can do. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's as much as I have time, energy, or effort to to do. And that's that's seems like plenty. You know, I get to torture a few kids every year. And that's <laughs> uh, can you elaborate on that? Why, how is that informative to you? Because they ask me questions that I would never ask of myself. And then I have to go, well, why am I doing that? Why, why is it better to move that mic there? Why should I put this? What, what, why is that signal flow better or whatever? You know, so they, they're constantly not even not purposely, but they're constantly challenging me to prove what I think is right is right. And so I have to be able to explain it. Um, I've told this story a million times, but I had a uh, trigonometry teacher in high school. And she's, she w just sort of got misty-eyed one day and was looking off in the distance and said, you know, I never understood calculus until I had to teach it. And I thought, I, I don't know why I remember that so clearly, <laughs> but uh, Mrs. Eaton. And now that I'm teaching recording, you know, I've been teaching for a long time now, but it's been very informative to myself about what I do and how I'm doing what I'm doing. In terms of what you try to pass on to the students, obviously you're teaching them technical things, but is there a philosophy you have about recording you like to impart? As we discussed a, mo a moment ago, um, my biggest thing is always make sure you're, you know, cognizant of what the artist is going through. Unfortunately, we have a great setup here where they the students are often on both sides of the glass. And so they get, you know, they're, they're their best recording people. And so then, you know, if, if you need somebody to come play guitar, one of the other students will come play guitar, but then you flip the equation on them later. And it's like, oh, well, you play bass though, so you can play bass on my thing. So you get to see both sides and have some sympathy for the people you're recording and understand what they're going through. It's traumatic. You know, these when people come to record, they're under the gun, they're under enormous time, energy, creative constraints, and there's money on the table and all these things. And they've got a lot on their minds that has nothing to do with what's coming out of the speakers. Mm -hmm. And you have to, <laughs> you have to help them battle through all that stuff and make them as comfortable as possible and, and be supportive to them. That's in terms of production or something like that. That's probably the biggest thing that I try and impart to them. And in terms of recording, I'm just battering them about signal flow endlessly. So when you're talking about making people comfortable, like when somebody shows up at your doorstep to come make a new record, obviously there's discussion ahead of time, but mm -hmm. but when they do show up and there is time constraints and money constraints, in my my experience, I always have artists show up with a laundry list that exceeds really what the time frame and the budget will allow. And in my mind, I'm kind of doing very quick calculations to think, okay, I can do this, 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 and this, and this order. And that's just to squeeze the to-do list into play. <laughs> but but in, in terms of th doing that and making them comfortable, like what are some of your thoughts about that and that you would suggest to others? It varies so much from person to person, what they're, what they're looking for in a recording experience. And I'll, I'll Almost all the projects I work on are full album projects. We're starting from a pre-production stage, sometimes, you know, months in advance of before we're actually in the studio and 
trading files back and forth, listening to MP3s, sometimes showing up at the showing up or, you know, I'll go to a gig or they'll, they'll show up and we'll do like just a pre-production phase with, all right, let's just play through these songs, get an idea of where you guys are at. So it really, it's just all over the map. What, what actually works for this or that person or this or that band, but uh, really just try, just asking them directly, like, what are you trying to do? What, give me some example, give me a hit list. Here's your, Give me a uh, iTunes playlist of what you think this record's going to sound like, or what you're hoping we're going to have. You know, what's the what's the overall sonic character of what we're trying to do here, and and then do it. I hope you know. So basically, just you know, kind of qualifying like what is it we're you're hoping instead of because I mean, there's I always talk about this with other artists and producers and engineers, and it's there's a lot of words that we tend to use when we record. And sometimes what may, what an artist says does not translate. So they may say, <laughs> you know, I want it to sound really thin, yeah. but my idea of thin may be radically different from theirs. So I, I love your idea of give me an iTunes playlist of what you think this record should be generally sounding like. Yeah. I learned, I learned that I had a very hard lesson with this band a long time ago called uh, Jenny Anykind was the name of the band. And we were working, we were working on a, a song and they were, they're like, well, what, you know, I said, what do you want it to sound like? They said, really big, really, really big. All right. All right. Great. So I add a bunch of reverb and do all this stuff and uh, now bigger, much bigger. Okay. I make every reverb longer. Everything's going hyper compression. Everything's, you know, massive. Now big. I'm like, finally, just play me an example of something that sounds big. And they played me this I think it was a Jimmy Cliff record from 1973. It sounded like it was coming through a transistor radio. I was like, they're like, that's huge. And I'm like, okay. And I stripped everything off. No reverb. Everything's dead dry. Yes, finally we've got it, you know? So yeah, exactly. You just no way to know until you've, you, if you listen to something though, it's very easy to tell what's supposed to happen. Yeah. You can talk. It's like, it's like talking about eating, you know, or whatever. You can't, there's no, it just it, taste it, you know, then you'll know. That's interesting. So when it comes to uh, your involvement on a production level, what, what are you bringing to the table or your style of production when you're, you're being very overt about, you know, let, what do you expect it to sound like? And I don't know that I have a style in that, in that way. I mean, I work with a lot of different groups who have a lot of different ideas about what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. And I'm just there to conform and help them to exemplify those ideas. I, I mean, ideally there's nothing, you know, if they, if they say, Hey, can you do something here? Can you make this more purple? Then great. I'll get in there and try and make it more purple for them or whatever it is that they're asking me to do. I'm, I'm happy to do, but that's, it's really just, I, I really look for bands that have a really strong identity for themselves and that they come in with an idea of what they want to sound like. Hmm. I'm, I'm really, I don't think that it's happened where I've, a band has come in. I've said, all right, here's what we're going to do. You're going to sound, you know, you're going to sound like Rolling Stones, 1976, you know, I, I don't know, whatever. Um, it's always up to them what we, what they sound like. Uh, sometimes I'll see, I'll see things where people are like, I can't believe, you know, this record sounds like this or that. And like, did you, you, you already liked this band. Did you think they were idiots? You know, this is, they, they did what they wanted to do. Right. You know, there's no, you know, if you don't like them now, it's not because I, uh, you know, it's something I did. It's because they got to do, I helped them do what they wanted to do. And you don't like that. That's fine. You know? Do you just basically never say no to it, to an artistic idea or recording? It's concept? pretty, it's 
pretty rare. I used to do it more often and I did, I found it very counterproductive in the big picture. I saying no to somebody about their idea. It's so much harder to explain why you think that's a bad idea than to let them just do the idea. It takes so much less time to let them do the idea and decide for, we can all decide. And the truth of the matter is a lot of times when I would say no, and then acquiesce and say, okay, well, let's try your idea. I was proven wrong. So I've mostly stopped saying no for almost anything uh, because the the easiest way to know is to hear it. I would, I would totally agree with that. And it's, does it ever get to a point though, where you feel, do you get uneasy with, you know, the artist keeps piling on more ideas and you're running out of time. Do, do, do you ever feel the pressure like, oh man, they, they want to do that again? We, but we already redid, we redid those vocals three <laughs> times and, ah, oh, they sound so good. Do you, do you ever just get frustrated? Well, I mean, the good, and I think this is the real reason why I used to say more no often than I do now is because we basically have unlimited tracking. And before saying no was because it meant specifically, I don't believe you can do better than that. And I think we have the best take available ever in the planet already on here. And if you might do better in one moment that's bugging you, but I don't think you'll do better in some way that I can punch you in and out of. So now that we're on digital, that's kind of just almost never true. The truth is it could probably always be better. Does it matter? I'm not sure it does very often, but it matters to the artist and that's good enough. That's, that's the bottom line. You're the grand facilitator. <laughs> Uh, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe not always to my, to anybody's benefit. But yes. <laughs> Does anybody ever come back at you and go, "Oh man, you let us go down a rabbit hole. Why didn't you just stop us?" Um, no, no. Maybe that's <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> maybe it's like uh, you know, you're like the cool uncle, where it's like we could go to Uncle Dave's. He lets us do anything. Whereas that's, you know, you're less yeah, parental. I'm, I, I'm definitely very permissive in the, in the recording studio. <laughs> in terms of the studio, and, and you say it's a family business, does, uh, do you have a manager? Yes. He's been uh, very, very instrumental in, in doing things uh, for a very long time. I think he really became my f permanent all-around manager you know, around, the, around the same time as we put the studio together, so... So he's been with us for me, with me for a long time. Um, he was actually, his name is Peter Shershin, and he is a guy who, he was an A&R guy at Columbia who signed Mercury Rev to Columbia mm. uh, back back in 1990. So I've known him since then. And a after, you know, I stopped being a full-time touring member of the band and stuff and concentrated more on production, he... Um, started asking if I was interested and started making those connections, you know, like, well, I, you know, somebody called me and asked me about you. And so I'm putting you, I'm letting you know they're doing this. And then he started putting together paperwork and slowly but surely it just became like, all right, that's happening now. You're my manager. That's interesting. So does, does he actively seek out work for you or does he just kind of take the, the incoming he's traffic? More, I think he's more of a gatekeeper at this point. Yeah. Um, I, I've, scrubbed most of my contacts from the web. Too many things were coming in. I just couldn't, I didn't have time to say no to everybody personally. And it was, uh, so really the only way to sort of get things to me is through him at this point. So it's good to have a, a, a gatekeeper. Yeah. And he's, he's, I mean, he's a smart guy. He's got his, 
he's got a million contacts in the industry and knows all these people. And so he's, you know, he's been great. And also finding things that didn't contact me and just said, you know, you should listen to this or you should check this out because X, Y, and Z are talking about this. And I think it's pretty cool too. And, you know, you should just know what's going on out there. Sometimes I'll just be buried in between the speakers at my place and not be aware of what else is happening all the time. And he's been great with that. If a band wants you to come outside of Tarbox to work, do you do you do that? I technically am physically capable of it, but I, I have not done so in a very, very long time. I, I've done a couple location recordings with the Flaming Lips, like the Hollywood Bowl or, some, or something like that. But um, yeah, I've, since we built the studio, I've basically just worked at the studio. I'm envious, man. I think that's a great position <laughs> to be in. Have, having your clubhouse running it the way you want to run it and uh having everybody come to you it's 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 ideal it's pretty pretty fantastic we have been very lucky with that yeah i certainly hope you're enjoying this interview i am and uh what a what a great thing to have dave fridman on we do want to take a sponsor break with our friends over at audio technica and i'm kind of going back to my earlier uh monologue at the intro talking about a core set of tools and really kind of honing it down to what you really need I know I've talked about my headphones in the past, and I'm going to talk about them again, so just hang in there with me here. But the ATH M40Xs from Audio-Technica, I am absolutely happy with these headphones. As I drag them around the house from you know, doing the podcast or doing some mixing uh, to maybe even listening to some music on another device in another room or whether I take them on a trip and listen on a plane, I drag them everywhere. And they've really held up. I've now had them, I think it's been a couple of years now, and they just physically, they take a beating. Sonically, they sound great. They, they're very revealing. The bass isn't overhyped in them. I just really enjoy the hell out of them, I, I got to say. So they are under $100. Do a Google search. You can probably find them for, um, I'm going to say probably around $80 to $90. If you're looking for a new pair of headphones and you're having a struggle with what to buy, really consider these. They work for me. They may not work for you. I'm not saying they're the end-all be-all, but they are a great set of headphones. And to me, they really exemplify the the whole working class concept, just really well-made, well-priced, and they do the job. So what more can you ask? So check it out, the Audio-Technica ATH M40Xs. And that's it. So let's jump back into it. Dave Fridman on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Do you keep the studio stocked with a lot of instruments? Yeah. I mean, you know, part of why we were able to even get a studio going in the first place is because, you know, you just collect gear over time and you have stuff and, and then I just keep buying things anyway. So slowly but surely you say, oh, you know, what would be good. We should probably have a Rhodes and one comes up for sale. Like, okay, let's get that Rhodes. It's a hundred bucks. Let's get it, you know, or uh, this or that guitar amp. And fortunately, one of our partners early on in the studio, Greg Snow, uh, who's our head technician still, uh, or sonic circuit specialist, as he would prefer to be called. Um, he, uh, you know, people always bring his their broken stuff to him anyways. And so he's like, this, you know, this is going to cost you 300 bucks to fix it. And they're just like, whatever, I don't care. And he said, or I'll give you 50 bucks for it. And I'm like, great, I'll take 50 bucks then. And he's, he's spent, you know, spend, then he'll probably spend $800 fixing it because he'll make it unbelievably good. And then it's like, oh, great, it's at the studio now. So we've got a lot of, a lot of fun gear, um, and I can take anything in no matter what state it is. And I know that he'll repair it fully to as good or better than it ever was. So it's awesome. 
That's that's cool. That's a a key part, obviously, is to having stuff work. So yeah. guys and gals that are working on, you know, are thinking, oh man, I, I really want to build a studio and I really want to make this this work. In this day mm-hmm. and age, knowing what you know now and technology-wise what we have, um, would you do Tarbox any different? No. Um, I mean, the layout is great. I mean, over time we've expanded it and added another building and now there's a studio B and all this other stuff. But, um, uh, you know, recently, we've recently doubled down on the concept. So obviously I guess my answer is no, we just bought a new, um, Neve 88 RS. So I still see a need for large scale recording projects where you're not just a guy in a room with a mic or a line in and you're, you know, you're, I mean, I'm going to get a UAD interface one of these days, but, um, I don't have one yet, but they're awesome. They sound great. And people record all the time on them and bring me those recordings and they're amazing, but that's really, it's a pain in the butt to actually track a live band with a UAD interface in your bedroom. You know, that's really just not really going to work. So I can set up, three drum kits, have them fully mic'd, have them all set to be hit go on any time and have a massive setup for my place where we can record an album with lots of variety and lots of interesting ideas all in real time while we're all playing music together, which, you know, is not what most people are doing, but that's what I really like to do. And a lot of the people that come here like to do that too. Mm. So for those that are thinking about building a studio now from a, just from a business perspective and, and, and a dependency on work, mm-hmm. um, any thoughts there as, you know, well, when we, yeah, sure. When we, when we built the studio, um, I had, you know, X kind of career at that point. I, I had had several years of making X amount of money and more to the point generating X amount of money for other people's studios. Mm. And so I knew what the budgets were. I knew, you know, what my basic, I had a reason, I had reason to suspect I would get X amount of work for the next year or two at least. And so we made a business plan that made it make sense so that assuming I at least didn't go too far down in my career path, um, that we could pay the bills. And, you know, so we didn't, I mean, we extended ourselves dramatically, but we didn't, it wasn't unrealistic. It was all I'm black and white and we had a very good idea of, okay, as long as I work at X fee two weeks out of every month for the next year, well, the lights will still be on a year from now and we'll, we'll still have food on the table. So it was very practical from, in a in a sense, I mean, it was ridiculous in another sense, but um, it was practical for the business portion of it. I think the biggest thing we had going for us when we started the studio was that we had very low expectations in regard to making money we, and that we knew we would need a repair and maintenance person for the gear. Uh, it seemed clear that there was very little chance of making a profit from owning a recording studio from all the people at all the different studios I had worked at, talking to them, the owners of those places. Um, and so we've always just reinvested any earnings we have happening at the studio just back into the studio and never, you know, we've never tried to draw a paycheck from it. We've never paid ourselves for running it or doing any of the stuff we do for it. You know, that way we, we keep our, my engineering and production career. That's a separate issue. And then there's a studio and that's a, that's its own deal. Uh, the good news is that having your own place makes, uh, gives you enormous flexibility in terms of your workflow. And it has served as a incredibly stable environment to work in. You had mentioned, uh, 
trigonometry in high school. Um, <laughs> did you go to college and what did you study? I did go to college. I actually went to college here in Fredonia at SUNY Fredonia for sound recording technology. At the time, the professor was David Moulton, who, uh, whose book I now teach out of. I mean, he was a fabulous teacher. Um, but what SUNY Fredonia offered, it, you know, you, it's, a, it's a Bachelor of Science degree. Mm-hmm. I didn't graduate, but I was here for five years. But we, it's a Bachelor of Science degree <laughs> where you have to get accepted into the School of Music and then you might, and you have to get accepted in the school, then the school of music as a, as a performer, and then also have to get accepted into the sound recording program. So you sort of do two years of music, really focused music, and then two years of really focused science. And then the whole time you're recording. And so you've access, I mean, at the time, the, the studios are amazing now, but at the time they were a little lackluster, but, um, you know, it's kind of thing, which was good training. You show up with a soldering iron or your session's not going to happen. Um, so um, but we had effectively unlimited time in the recording studio, which is very different than any of the programs now or any of the programs then is as long as you wanted to be there, you could be there basically. And we had assigned blocks and everything, but, um, you just go from session to session to session, just hang out with people and learn what they're doing and find out how they're doing it. And it was amazing. It's clear you have a respect for the, you know, the artists that you work with, but you, at the same time, my perception is that you have a very kind of analytical mind and you, you really think through things. Am I off base on that? Or are you just making this shit up as you go along? <laughs> I, well, I guess it yeah. depends on who you ask, I suppose. But uh, yeah, um, I, you know, I've, I've, I've got a lot of experience at this point, I guess they could say that for mm-hmm. me, but uh um, yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's too, I try not to think it out too far advanced because then it just becomes, uh, boring for everybody. You know, I, I like, I like having some random elements developing at all times. So I wanted to ask you that, that, that when you're working with an artist and the tones you get, I mean, you've, you've done some, some very adventurous sounding stuff that it seems like you, you, you seem completely uninhibited sonically with the artists that you work with. And that's, that's one thing I really love about you. Uh, at least that's what I love about what I hear. When yeah. You, I mean, those are the people I want to work with, you know, do you ever, it's, it's them. No, I know, mean, that's what they want. So, Are you hunkered down to a point where you don't even like consider what else is out there at the time? No, I'm always, I'm always considering, you know, as I think, Oh, I don't remember what, how long it was ago, two months ago or something, you know, and I was just flipping through stations on the radio and, uh, formation came on, uh, Beyonce's formation. I was like, what the hell is this? This is, a, I didn't know what it was. And I just get Shazam out quickly before the song goes away and like, holy crap, this is amazing. You know? And so there's, I'm always trying to find out what's going on out there. Not so much so I can emulate it specifically or to like, oh, I got to figure out how did they do this one little thing, but just more to sort of take the temperature of the room. Like how, how far, how far can we go before anybody notices? Oh, oh no, that's weird. We shouldn't do that. You know? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I always, uh, I call it the, the glass of milk test. So say there's a, a boom box going in the kitchen and you, go from the living room out to the kitchen to get a glass of milk and you're going to come back. Now, does anything happen in that song that while I'm getting my glass of milk and then exiting the room that I stop and go, holy cow, what the hell was that? And that's what I'm always looking for. Like trying to make something happen 
that makes me stop getting that glass of milk and listen for a second, which is inc incredibly hard to do to make anything happen coming out of the speakers that anybody would even notice. And the standard, the in my opinion, the bar for that just keeps going up and up and up because things just keep getting crazier and crazier what's coming out of the speakers, which is great. You know, it's really exciting to me because that just means, gosh, I can do almost anything. And, and, and if I like it, and if we do something that we think sounds cool, nobody's going to tell us later downstream, oh no, that's too weird. You know, I used to do distorted vocals on something and, you know, you'd hear the people from, you know, even at the time of, uh, what was the name of it? Uh, last Splash was on the radio, you know, Breeders Last Splash was on the radio and I'm trying to convince a, a record executive like that the vocals aren't too distorted. It's okay. We can do this. It's okay now. And uh, no, 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 we can't do that. You're ruining the record. Like, oh, All right, man. I don't know what to tell you. This is what the band wants. I like it. Put it out or don't. I don't know what to tell you. So, you know, you'd always try to push those envelopes. So. You don't really have that much of that problem nowadays, though, do you? As far as record execs <laughs> getting in the way of sonically what's happening? Oh, or... Or am I wrong? Yeah, that still happens. Huh. Um, uh, I'm not necessarily directly fighting those battles, but uh, you know, the bands I work with have to deal with it. I mean, technically, I get paid by labels frequently, but um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm working for the band, and whatever what they want is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, once in a while, I'll get a call from a record executive like come on, man, you know, you're, we're on the same side here, right? We want, and like, I, no, I'm not. I'm on their side, and if, there's nothing that's going to change about that's that. That's always a red flag. We're on the same side, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm, I don't think so. <laughs> I can't even imagine having that conversation. It's, I've, had, I've had it more than I'd care to. I'm sure it was more the case uh, some time ago, but in these days... Does a point system really still exist and does it work for taking points on a record? I, I guess it depends on what you mean by does it work. Well, do you uh, get paid? <laughs> well, then, uh, yeah, I think that still works. Um, and I think it's a valid method. I, I mean, so I think that I think there's a lot of people that think that that's a terrible idea and you're stealing from the artist, blah, 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 blah. But I guess I just don't really see it that way. I feel like if I'm if I'm that far invested into something and I've I deserve that if it works out then great then we all win and if it doesn't work out well no harm done right mm -hmm. um uh, we all tried our best and you know being a participant on that side of it seems reasonable to me I've been a recording artist in the past and it seemed like yeah we're I mean don't get me wrong. What's what's crazy is that there's 12 point deals in the first place. Now that's insane. You 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 run that flag up the pole in any other business, and they're just going to laugh in your face. But that's <laughs> that's how we that's how this business operates, which is pure insanity in my opinion. But um, uh, 50 50 deals, things like that, that makes a lot more sense to me. But um, you know, anyways, I, I think the point I think the points thing does work, and I think it actually weirdly now seems to work more with independent groups because you actually you tend to spend less up front and the machine behind it can't no, no matter what there's no half a million dollars to throw at um, marketing for this there is no half a million dollars for that so there's no half a million dollars to pay back ever out of your points either so it doesn't really matter so you're much more likely to actually get points on a on a smaller budget or a setup so 
independence at all. But your and your manager obviously deals with having those conversations. I assume uh, generally once in a while, you know, if <laughs> it does happen where managers can't quite get on the same page with each other, but me and the artists are on the same page, so we, me and them, have to sort of intervene and call pull pull the dogs back a little bit and say, "All right, guys, we're get now. This here's some bottom lines that you can deal with, and let's just move past that point." Wow. Okay. From uh, your perspective as uh, as an engineer, as a producer, studio owner, do you ever try to impart any financial advice to your students? And do you have any financial advice in terms of <laughs> how to how to survive in this yeah. business um, even now? Um, with the students, I, I typically have a at least in the sophomore level. Uh, at the end of that year, I I give them a music business class. Hmm. And we start talking about points. We start talking about publishing. We start talking about songwriting. We talk about, you know, the mechanics of how records roll out, especially in particular to major labels, which is eventually leads all the way down to, and this is why the artist will never get paid anything unless they sell over a million records. And that's why you have to be nice to them at all times because they are the poor slobs that are killing themselves just to be heard and you have to help them. That's your job. You know, you're going to get paid. The lawyer's going to get paid. The manager's going to get paid. Publishing gets, everybody gets paid. Artist gets nothing. So for the love of God, help them, <laughs> help them do whatever crazy idea they're trying to do. Just help them. And then in regards to the, um, you know, starting out, it's, it's really important that the kids understand or anybody starting out in the business understands you're basically self-employed and you are responsible for withholding taxes and insurance and anything else that's going to happen. This is your small business. And if you, if you treat it responsibly, you can make that work. But if you don't pay attention and overextend yourself and, um, you know, just go like, Ooh, look at that shiny object. You're going to not make it. You really have to pay attention and put a, put aside, you know, you get a thousand dollars, put $330 aside into a separate account. Cause you're going to need that for taxes later. Don't pay You know, just, Put something over there. People don't think about it because it's just not real until it happens. Until you know? the IRS sends you that bill and you go, oh, yeah. no. <laughs> what was I thinking? Yeah. I thought that was a tax write-off. Well, yeah, but it's only written off so much. You still have to pay for it. That's still income. <laughs> you still have to pay that. You know? Just because you bought it doesn't mean you don't have to pay taxes. Yeah. Um. Do you kind of set a budget for yourself for gear purchases over the course of a year? No. I mean, it's it's just try and be, I guess, basically every purchase gets looked at individually as, is this important? Do we need this? Um, is this going to help us help the other people we're working with or not? And, and can we afford it? Is there any sort of reasonable um, expectation that this is this is not going to sink us, you know? So I guess I'm not in any given year, I'm expecting my purchasing budget to be zero. And then it just ends up being more than that. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I'm never thinking, yeah, let's go out and spend X amount every year to push this forward. Although that's not necessarily a bad idea. I just, it usually becomes pretty apparent like, Oh, I just received four, 14 different sessions that all had the same plugin that I don't own. I guess I'm buying that plug. Mm. You know. Do you take in a lot of work to mix that you haven't tracked? I mean, I do do that and I'm, I'm trying to not, I, I don't love just mixing things as much as I did because so many more things now 
are effectively mixed before they get to you mm. because people are working so much in the box that there's, you know, there's just endless, endless tweaking. And so by the time it gets to you, it's sort of like, well, can you not change it at all, but make it better? And that's not really what I do. Um, so, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not really, um, looking for that kind of work at this point. I really, prefer producing things from the ground up and then dealing with the final result. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm trying to focus on. You like to take, take a project from inception to completion. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Do you ever work on projects and stop short of mixing them and, and like to send them out to be mixed or is that a rare thing? It, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. Uh. I'm I'm not against it happening, okay. but it hasn't happened. So when we when we hear a record that your name is on, I mean, you you really have your hand in all of it. Uh, yeah, usually. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there there are things that I've just mixed or, you know, just mastered or whatever. But it's uh, usually most of the things I work on going all the way through on. Do you do you like to handle the mastering side of it as well, or do you like to farm that out? I don't love mastering. I mean, I I like I like actually. Uh, getting the final sound. I do like the, the audio part of mastering. Mm -hmm. I just don't like any of the other parts. Of it. <laughs> the, um, f you know, getting the ISRC codes right and, you know, making sure that, you know, get us uh, exporting my DDPs, all that stuff just really, it drives me crazy. So I just end up not doing it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, your, your sons, do they musically influence you at all or try to turn you on to music that you don't think you'd otherwise hear or pay um, attention to? I, I would say my youngest son especially does that, but only inadvertently because uh, he's. I generally hate hated horns my whole life, uh, meaning brass. Oh. Um, and bra and recording brass and bla brass players, but my son plays trombone. <laughs> so um, I've listened to and attended many many brass concerts and different uh, varieties of that, and now I'm even in a drum and bugle corps with him playing bass drum, which is fun. So he's, he's influenced me quite a bit in that regard. I can't tolerate brass. <laughs> <laughs> what? You're going to be a horn player. Anything but that, son. It's worked out great. And he's really, really good at it. And it's fun to listen to, actually. So That's interesting. But they, they never come to you and go, hey, dad, check this song out. Not much. They, they'll, they'll once in a while say, oh, we can't figure out, you know, we're trying to do this thing in Pro Tools and we can't figure it out. And then as soon as I've, Shown them, oh, it's this sub menu, and you need to do this, and they're like, okay, thanks, and then, oh, yeah, okay, go, bye, yeah, we're see good. ya. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see how that would happen. I also have two boys, but mine are much younger. Mine are seven and ten, so okay. I'm sure there's going to come a time when that happens, and I'm going to be like, actually, my, 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 we got a drum set for my youngest son, and he said to me one day, I, I was kind of harping on him a little bit. I was like, you know, if you don't practice. <laughs> You're not going to get any better. And he, and I'm, we're driving and he's from the back of the car. He goes, dad, I'm not going to do this for a job when I'm older. This is just for fun. <laughs> and my heart sank a bit. And at the same time, I kind of went, okay, okay, fine, <laughs> fine. That's totally fine. But it was such a weird thing to hear from a seven-year-old. It's not going to be my job. Well, he says that now. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. I should have recorded that. <laughs> yeah, hold it over its head later. As far as uh, the studio and your working method, I mean, I realize you you adapt yourself probably to what each artist wants, but yeah. are there kind of common denominators or similar ways of working? Or do you just like 
have a blank slate every time and go, okay, what are we going to do now? <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, there's definitely some form of template that has worked well, you know, even just on a basic level, you know, over time, I like to work in two week segments. I like to take a day off in the middle. I like to work about 12 hours a day, usually noon to midnight. So some of those kind of basic things remain always the same. People try and break them every so often and then then it usually fails and then like, okay, I get it now. Never mind. Um so like to take, you know, work for three weeks instead, it's like, I can do it. I know I can do it, but I also know you can't. I know you're gonna crack after two weeks and you're gonna wish you hadn't booked three weeks and that it's gonna be too long. Um this is hard to concentrate for that long on, you know, day in and day out on on a bunch of songs. So I like to work in groups, uh, say if we're going to do 12 songs on a record or something, I like to do, you know, three or four song groups. Typically any 12 songs is going to work into like, all right, there's a bunch that are like this. There's a bunch that are like that. There's a bunch that are like that. All right, great. Well, let's get set up and tackle that group over the course of the next few days and get those into a certain form before we move on to the next. It's always really important to me in terms of process to make sure that we don't I mean, because I'm usually working on uh, typically eight week long projects to do a record, uh, I want to make sure that we don't have that situation like day five drums are done and the drummer has nothing to do for the next, you know, seven weeks. I, that's abhorrent to me and it's counterproductive because then we're not going to get any good insight from that person, certainly by, you know, week four or something like that. Um, they're just going to be completely tuned out to the process. So I like to get a few songs and take them as far as we possibly can. And typically three, you know, three or four songs is going to happen in a two week period. And then we're going to do another three or four songs. We'll do another three or four songs. And then we're going to mix it in that last two week period, something of that sort. And that way everybody's engaged in the process the entire time and an active participant. So they can say, Oh, remember that snare sound we did, you know, four weeks ago, let's do that. Let's do something like that. But with this other different version of it and, okay, great. Everybody's still thinking and trying to push the project forward and, and, and helpful. And otherwise it just turns into like, you know, people sitting around getting drunk and it's just boring for them. And that's no fun. That's funny. You say that uh, I play drums and I was in this band called seven day diary. We were on a, we had a record out on Warner brothers. That's exactly what happened. Drums <laughs> were done. And then I sat around and, and we did the record in, in London and I was just sitting around with nothing to do. Yeah. And unfortunately at that time I wasn't as, you know, uh, I wasn't into recording as much as I was, am now, of course, but yeah. holy crap, we should have done the record with you. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just, uh, I think we get, you know, most of the groups I work with, everybody in the band is really, you know, active in terms of how they sound. You know, it's a very group effort. And so if you, set it up so that okay well you know now now it's day nine but now all the bass and drums are done now we got two guys sitting around doing nothing for weeks on end that's you know they'll try and pay attention they'll try and be engaged but at some point you just can't you know and you just you just fall out of the process like i can't sit here and listen to vocal takes for another two weeks i can't do it and i don't want to work like that either i don't want to do vocals for two weeks straight i want to i want to change it and have variety through the whole thing and and get the opportunity to say hey you know what we could maybe now that we're on our third different version of these drum sounds maybe we should redo track number one 
and just go back and say, okay, because we haven't overcommitted or already mixed the song or something, we can say, now we know some stuff about working together and working on this sound that we've been trying to get to, that we can actually get to it. And I'll always throw something else out if it's, if we can do better, let's, let's get rid of it. And then you, how much time did you say, did you allocate for mixing? Uh, usually about two weeks, so a song a day kind of thing. Okay. And are you kind of mixing a little bit as you're going along? Um, not, not usually, um, because I'm not, I'm out on the board. And so it's not really, you know, I suppose if I do a moment where I have uh, 50 tracks of vocals for some weird idea, sure, I'm going to submix that down to two tracks at some okay. point and say, all right, that's that sound. But, um, you know, generally no, although we'll talk about it or if we stumble upon something that's cool sound or try and experiment like, well, what if we did this? All right, that sounds cool. Well, we'll print that too and keep it so that we can know that oh yeah that's that cool sound for that song great so it, the band is present during the mixing and you're mixing on on i, I insist on okay it, yes. okay so and you're mixing on your board and do you find yourself ever where the band is gone everything's done and then you're into another record with another band and somebody calls and says oh actually can we get a half db <laughs> up on the vocal what do you what do you sure do? okay i say i'd be happy to do that for you Two weeks from now when i'm done with this record ah or when i'm done with this session you know i see yeah oh so you're when you said your two-week packs you're like doing two weeks a week off then a week off some other band will come in for two weeks then a week off and maybe the first band comes back and maybe a third band comes in and so we're i'm round robining people continuously so i'm always doing something different and that gives them plenty of time in between sessions to be prepared for the next one and ruminate about any changes they might want or how they want to proceed forward. And also, um, you know, frankly, a lot of times people are still working on the songs as we're moving forward. So it gives them time to be like, I think I could do that verse better or whatever. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's usually, yeah, I usually have some time or a minute here and there where I could go, okay, I could do a recall for you, but that's going to take me all day and we'll do it in a couple of weeks. Do you ever work in that? Do you do it in that week break? Or do you do Sometimes, it? Sometimes, yeah. And I, and I try not to schedule myself in completely, but that doesn't always work. Um, so, <laughs> Despite my best efforts, usually things tend to pile up or take a little longer sometimes than somebody thought they would or whatever. So, Wow. Um, That's interesting. I really like how you approach that and, and how you kind of keep everybody involved at all times because, like you say, you don't have members sitting around for too long and you're not stuck just barreling yeah. through vocal takes uh, that could get monotonous yeah it's brutal and 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 it's i mean is it doesn't matter whether it's drums or bass or or vocals i mean you you can you can play drums 12 hours a day but you can't play drums 12 hours a day well <laughs> nobody can <laughs> so and you can sing 12 hours a day but you can't sing 12 hours a day well you just can't so you know we have to keep like, all right, let's do, let's do the first half of the day. We're going to do guitars. The second half of the day, we'll do vocals. All right, tomorrow we'll do bass for the first half of the day. Second half of the day will be guitars. And then third day, we'll start with vocals and keep going. You know, let's keep people involved and rolling around so they don't get just burnt out. You know, it's just, you can't have no perspective. If you're, you're working on, you know, if you're working on the song for, you know, four days, which happens on a regular basis, it's time to put that song away and look at something else for a little while and get some perspective on what you were doing. I like that. Well, Dave, this has been great to talk to you. I really appreciate you being on the show. It's been nice talking to you too. 
Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you. And uh, take care. You too. Take care, man. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. There it is. Once again, a fantastic interview. Dave Fridman. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate you doing that. Alan Farmella, thank you for arranging that. What a great thing to have Dave on. Love that. Hope you enjoyed it. We are out of time and there's other people to thank, of course. We got to thank Mr. Cliff Truesdale for that music. Chuck Smith for his voiceover and Cole Williams for all of his support all the way around on YouTube and social media and all that. Want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, Focal Monitors, and Universal Audio. And hey, always, 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 thank you for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.